Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jason Shulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is Alexandra Delias. She's a lecturer in Heritage Studies at the Australian National University. She's here to talk about her new book, Histories of Controversy, Bonagilla Migrant Center, published by Melbourne University Publishing in August 2017. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so maybe we can start with a pretty basic question, but but what is the Bonagilla Migrant Center and why did you want to write about it? Good question. Um, Bonagilla was a Department of Immigration Reception and Training Center um, located in well on the border of New South Wales and Victoria. And it operated across the period of the post-war immigration scheme, so from 1947 to 1971. Um, it was a temporary home, depending on your length of stay and a point of processing and dispersal for some 320,000 European refugees and assisted migrants, um, those who came to Australia under assisted passage provided by the Commonwealth Government. I think, and it does appear quite prominently in a lot of post-war, um, histories of post-war immigration, but it also has a prominent place in, in community uh, memories of that of that era and of reception, processing and settlement in post-war Australia. So what's the... Um, oh, go ahead. No, I just, well, I wanted to talk a bit more about, I guess, my motivation for wanting to write another book on a subject that many of us um, might know a lot about, and that is the post-war immigration scheme. Um, Bonagilla's history has been told many times before, um, I guess, in more popular or community histories of the site. Um, but I was also aware that within many of these voices that surround Bonagilla's commemoration, there's a need to complicate um, its commemoration as a birthplace of multiculturalism or its current status as a national heritage site. So I chose to focus on more controversial episodes or, or issues that occurred um, at or are often associated with uh, Bonagilla. Um, and those controversial episodes are things like uh, family separation under the Commonwealth Government's two-year work contract, um, the deaths um, in 1949 of newly arrived uh, displaced persons' babies, general standards of health um, and well-being for children and food, as well as points of protest and the infamous riots over migrant unemployment. So, so the book is titled Histories of Controversy. Uh, and, and as you just mentioned, one of the, the, the way your book is structured is there's uh, four big chapters, each dealing with, with a controversy. And you say that the controversies weren't mere blips in an otherwise successful story, but rather the controversies are the story. Uh, so what is the story that's usually told and, and how, how are these controversies missing? I guess when we think of the post-war immigration scheme, we often tie it into the eventual realisation of a multicultural Australia. And for many journalists and politicians, that is a, a success story, um, that we somehow arrived at this harmonious presence, which is, of course, questionable, but that uh, the origins of that story somehow lie in the post-war immigration scheme and the foresight of, of the government. 
Um, but if we actually look at some of those episodes that occurred um, throughout Bonagilla's history, as I say, there weren't mere blips um, in this history. We're talking about the lived realities of, of migrants. And I hope that in to, by delving into some of these stories, we can complicate some of those lived realities. Um, I'm not arguing that this is a totally uh, dystopian vision of the post-war immigration scheme. I just really wanted to draw out, um, I guess, less officially sanctioned narratives of Bonagilla and the post-war immigration scheme and look at um, not only its implications for standards of care and family life, but also how, um, I guess, official structures kind of contained and controlled uh, the lives of migrants across this era. You mentioned the over 300,000 uh, newcomers to Australia that, that came through. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what was Australian immigration like, you know, 1947 to 1971, and, and how was it different from what had come before? Well, we're talking about, for the first time ever, mass numbers entering um, Australia, um, many of them under schemes initiated by the government with um, European governments, but also with, in the first instance, the International Refugee Organization. Um, so refugees left in uh, European displaced persons camp after after World War II, including uh, Russians, Ukrainians, uh, Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, as well as Polish and Yugoslavian refugees. We're talking about people who uh, had never um, been allowed entry into Australia before in mass numbers. Um, later on, um, after the... I guess, supply, as the government called it, supply of people from the uh, refugee camps um, dried out. We were in search of more people to boost industry um, and agriculture. There were mass gaps in the labour market. So Australia sought um, migration agreements with other countries in West Germany, Austria, Greece, Italy, um, later Malta, Malta, Turkey. We, of course, received refugees from Czechoslovakia, uh, eventually Chile and Lebanon, and each wave of new arrivals obviously had different uh, political leanings and social expectations of the state and community, um, and, and this in itself is evident in the different memories of and orientations to their stay at Bonagilla and how they eventually settled into the community. Um, before this period, as I said, Australia had, had never settled mass numbers of new immigrants before, and, and the government was really... Um, embarking on a, a bold new experiment, um, hence the need to establish some of these camps. Bonagilla was, of course, a former um, army training centre. Australia was experiencing a housing shortage at this time. Um, despite uh, encouraging mass numbers of new arrivals, uh, we didn't really have anywhere to house or process these peoples. That's why it became necessary to set up these remote uh, processing centres like Bonagilla, uh, Greta, Skyville, um, Northam in Western Australia. There were over 20 of these larger Department of Immigration camps set up across the country to receive these new arrivals as well as um, countless hostels and smaller centres um, in um, the cities across Australia as well. So let's let's dive into the first of your four uh, con- con- controversial histories that you that you look at, and that's family separation. Um, and you say that the separation of families was an almost universal practice, uh, if, if a temporary one. Um, but in the early years of DP settlement, most of the you know incoming uh, refugees faced this family separation and the work contract. So tell us why. W- what was it all about? Well, those who had. Uh signed up for assisted passage to Australia, signed a a two-year work contract with the Commonwealth Government and that basically stipulated that they would be um, 
directed to nominated places of employment by the government um, for that two-year period. Um, this contract uh, saw many families separated, mainly, mainly sorry, DPs. Um, it was a rule, of course, that did not apply to British governments um, and the government stated many times over that it was not desirable that British dependents be separated from, from their so-called breadwinner. So in this instance, uh, male displaced persons would be allocated work on um, major industrial sites or in agriculture. For example, um, men would be sent off to the Snowy Mountains hydroelectric scheme. Um, and in that case, they were accommodated in so-called men's-only workers' hostels, uh, sometimes run by the Department of Immigration, sometimes run by um, individual employers, um, uh, such as BHP. And these men's-only workers' hostels uh, were said not to be suitable to accommodate um, a man's dependents, so women and children. So in that instance, uh, women and children were sent off to uh, what they called holding centres, these holding centres were also in remote locations. Um, one example is uh, Greta, another one is Benalla, um, New South Wales and Victoria, respectively. And across that two-year work period then, um, a family could, could be separated under these conditions with a male breadwinner um, working in a remote location and his um, dependents housed in holding centres anywhere across the country. This kind of indentured contract created, I guess, an endless parade of people being shifted from place to place across the country. Um, if uh, a man's employment contract uh, ran out uh, within that two-year period and he has reallocated work somewhere else, his dependents could be shifted to yet another holding centre across the country. Um, so throughout the 1950s and well into the 60s, we kind of see uh, what Karen Orgader has called this continuum of mobility. So uh, displaced persons kind of moving across the country according to this two-year work contract. And it, it really unsettled these ideas about settlement, particularly for a group of people who had experienced so much uh, displacement throughout the war and in, in the post-war era in refugee camps. Um, it also perpetuated and reinforced a displaced person's sense of, of dependence and, and powerlessness as well. They were never quite able to settle within that two-year period. Many people stayed within holding centres beyond that period because they weren't able to afford um, accommodation outside the holding centre system. The uh, second controversy that you look at, uh, and, and you're a cultural historian, so maybe you can um, tell us, you know, why why food? Um, it's a really interesting chapter uh, and one and a really interesting subheading uh, that I liked called Mutton and Multiculturalism. But but why why is food something important to study and, and why was it important to study uh, in, in the center? It was something I noticed just uh, having done or read through many memories of, of Bonagilla is that people often like to mention um the food uh, as a sensory memory and something that kind of stood out in many people's stories about Bonagilla. Um, and food and taste, as I say in the book, can be an important um, aspect of memory and sensory recollection. But it, it was also more than that. Um, it was more than just a sensory experience. I think it also kind of uh, represented uh, many of the power struggles that occurred at Bonagilla between the administration, the government and uh, respective waves of migrants and displaced persons who kind of made demands on a system or made demands for change or demands that their diversity be acknowledged. Uh, and there are many interesting stories actually attached to food. I, I, um, 
I was surprised I was able to to kind of write this entire chapter, part of which does explore the prominence of, of mutton um, in the memories of not just Bonagilla but all post-war immigration centres. And and uh, and these stories about the impact of, of post-war migrants on Australia's culinary culture have been have been told before. Um, but never within the context of, of this system of post-war migrant hostels and how, how that tension and conflict played out within that space. The third and fourth sections of your book deal with uh, health, well-being and children uh, and, and then economic conditions and, and the riots that took place uh, in 1952 and then in 1961. I want to ask you about uh, Bonagilla today. Uh, you're uh, an expert in, in heritage studies. How is the centre uh, represented uh, culturally in Australia today? Uh, well, Bonagilla itself is uh, currently heritage listed on the National Heritage List as well as the um, Victorian Heritage Register. Um, and it is run by uh, Wodonga City Council. It, it's it's a major heritage site. And I'd say there are many conflicting, contested memories attached to that site, depending on um, your perspective. Some might say, and many politicians and journalists do, um, that it's it's a site for national commemoration, that it may or may not represent, um, as I've said, this so-called birthplace of, of multiculturalism or the coming together of many different cultures. That That is, of course, contested. Um, other, other groups of people have more, um, I guess, a, a familial uh, community attachment to the site, um, which is not in it itself entirely positive, but but can kind of, I guess, connotate uh, as I mentioned before, an unsettled idea of settlement, a delayed settlement, but also a kind of nostalgia that is attached to uh, first homes, um, first places of settlement, and all these ideas, I guess, kind of come together um, around or kind of coalesce around this site and how it's represented in the media, um, how it gets represented in um, heritage discourses and in the way we talk about um, national heritage sites. It's quite difficult to to satisfy all voices when talking about a place like Bonagilla. Um, as I said, we're talking about over 300,000 people from um, many different places around the world who arrived um, over a 24-year period that saw different um uh, administrations, uh, different standards of care. Uh, so it is very difficult to try and represent what Bonagilla means to to many different people. Um, and, and I guess that's why the heritage landscape around this particular site and around all stories of postal immigration um, are, are, so, are so rich and evolving as well. Alex, I want to thank you for being on the show today. That's Alexandra Delios. Her new book is Histories of Controversy, Bonagilla Migrant Centre published by Melbourne University Publishing in August 2017. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.